Hello and welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast that takes the juiciest, smartest and most interesting bits out of the fantastic Startup Daily program, 2pm every weekday on Ausbiz. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net and right beside me is none other than... Elliot Hasty and Simon, I'm really getting used to these short weeks, I must say. I, I don't think a five-day week is going to suit me anymore. I oh, know, next week, well, uh, it depends on how much time you spend on Twitter, really. Elliot, uh, on how quickly the time passes. Oh, and isn't that been a saga? Because, of course, we will start in the big end of town today. And it is, of course, the news that everyone is talking about, Simon. Elon Musk is about to buy Twitter. It's finally happening. I think we need to talk about who's going to play Elon Musk in the Netflix series, or do you think it might be Binge or some other one? Because, of course, this is an epic soap opera at this point in time. Richest man in the world buys free speech platform, town marketplace, and everyone loses their, what could I call it? Let's say merde, to use the French term. (laughs) Everyone loses their marbles? (laughs) Everyone loses their tweets. Although one of my favourite tweets this week actually was someone who said, I'm getting off Twitter to go and see all of my friends who left the UK after Brexit and uh, the US after Trump, which... (laughs) (laughs) And what is it, uh, uh, all the Liberals that will leave Australia um, if Labor wins as well? I've heard, seen that one around. One of the other ones, of course, is from a Twitter employee just asking if he's rich or fired. I love that one from Ned Miles. Yeah, please tell me which one it is. And, of course, there has been plenty of conversation about this on Twitter. And lots of different takes. Elliot, what's yours? Give me your hot take. I I think I tweeted it this morning as well, and I refrained from using sort of bolder language. And Elon Musk has this opinion of freedom of speech, and it seems to be that freedom of speech is not freedom to be a dickhead is how I'm going to sort of sum up my thoughts on it. Like there is freedom of speech, but it doesn't just mean you can do whatever you say, bully whoever you want, uh, do whatever you want to do. Um, And that's my take on it. He wants to create his utopia, but I I don't think it is. Which he did to a couple of the lawyers at Twitter, and it was pretty appalling. Uh, You know, he tweeted about two top lawyers. They were then abused on Twitter with racist and sexist attacks. So this is a guy who, you know, thinks first, doesn't really think about the consequences because, of course, you know, he's in his own stratosphere. But when you've got 81 million followers and you are a dickhead... I'm just going to put it that way, Elliot. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, it has consequences and it has consequences for people who don't have the same voice, don't have the same power, don't have the same money. And this is going to be a big issue because I've seen it with a bunch of people who are critical. I've seen it with the Musk bots turning up around me when I make jokes about the Muscalites and everything. I, you know, in some ways I don't care, but I do know that this stuff get, grinds people down. And we've seen some very good people leave Twitter. This could be a big problem for the company long term. This is a man who potentially will bomb the village in order to save it. And I, you know, I did speak about this with Gavin Appel from Ignition Lane this week, talking about uh, Twitter. And of course, at, at the beginning, there was, you know, there was employees in all hands. And some of the questions were around sort of freedom of speech. How will they monitor content going forward? Uh, all these relevant concerns. He, you know, I think he's a bit more of a Musk fan than than I am personally. Um, Tesla Ga- driver, <laughs> Gavin, you can definitely correct me on that if you are listening in. But you know, he did he did say you know uncertainty and change does bring you know about confusion and people want to know you know they want to know what's going on. But have a listen to what he did have to say. 
I think with any uncertainty and change, um, there's a lot of people that are fearful of what that means to themselves, potentially to their jobs, to their family and the like. And obviously with someone like Elon, who already runs Tesla, he runs SpaceX, he runs the boring company, he runs Neuralink. And now he's got a social media, which he calls, you know, the default digital town square of the world. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, there can be a lot of uncertainty. He also moves at rapid pace. And uh, there's been some reports about different styles of culture internally at the business. So when you mash all of that together, um, you, you get quite a lot of uncertainty. There, there is no doubt there's a lot of opportunity as well. Uh, as you said, Jack Dorsey, one of the co-founders and recent CEO of Twitter, um, has endorsed Elon as, as someone that he's, he's comfortable um, has, has taken this as a first step, but he also said that he doesn't believe that any one person uh, should own the company. So it'll be, you know, th no doubt there'll be um, additional, you know, boards and, and governance and other things that, that will come into play shortly. But, you know, if you, if you flick around on Twitter, you know, it's funny this morning, uh, I'm fortunate to own myself one of his uh, Tesla EVs and it was a bit strange driving out of the car park, uh, out of the car park, out of the driveway this morning um, in, a, in a Tesla car, which I love and I'm a big fan of but also that the same person who is running that business now owns the social network that I'm also a big fan of and a big user of. So those two worlds colliding. But as I said, you know, on, on Twitter itself, there are a lot of people for it, those people in Elon's camp who believes that he can drive a lot of change for the benefit. But then there are a lot of negative people who are saying that they might jump off Twitter um, and, and we'll see how long, you know, they stay off it for because it is a, it is a bit of a drug, the, the gift that keeps on giving, you know, the endless scroll of tweets. So I think we have to wait and see. I think definitely in our short-term uh, future, there will be a significant amount of change that come through uh, from a product perspective, from a policy and moderation perspective. And, you know, we can only, we can only wait and see. But no doubt, you know, we'll, we'll see a lot of that banter on Twitter as it starts to unfold with, with everybody, including you and I, having an opinion on, on how this moves forward. Yeah, look, as, as he said, he's kind of this, got this conflict. And I think there's going to be a lot of conflict for people because, of course, there's a definite sense that there's going to be a swing to the right in terms of what's going on. And, of course, you've got everyone who believes in climate change and is buying Teslas and paying a premium for them as a consequence. And they're going to find that sort of one of Silicon Valley's heroes it's kind of got a very interesting political take that uh, might not align with their own values and for this i kind of also turn to anand juraharadis who is a great writer i followed for so many years he used to write about music but now this week he had a piece in the new york times elon musk is a problem masquerading as a solution and he made some really interesting points in that i would urge everyone to read that the other one he said on Twitter, which I thought was great, was having a wait-and-see attitude to Elon Musk is only possible if you don't believe the past informs the future, didn't live through the rise of Donald Trump as politician and or are so personally immune from the cost of democratic erosion that you don't understand others' fears. Now, he went on in another tweet to sort of say he got confronted at the airport, you know, to which he got replies like, you know, um, did you have a stroke or is that your real name? Uh, no, they could smell the curry on you. It was the sniffer dogs. You know, and it's this sort of crap that, you know, we, we do have that sense from time to time that Twitter can be a little bit of a sewer. The interesting thing will be, will it become so unpleasant in this new free speech era? Because free speech comes with 
comes great responsibility. I think it's the the phrase with great, you know. With you've definitely butchered the yeah, Spider Man quote. Totally, uh, totally uh, yes. won't take you to Marvel. All right, well, you can do it for me, please, Elliot. But this with, is the thing. I completely agree, and the piece is amazing, and it does certainly articulate everything that um, a lot of people are probably trying to say with you know with quotes, with research, with with links, as well. Um, and yeah, I think you know with free speech does come you know, you've got to participate in society. So it does come with consequences if you do talk about things that people are like, actually, you can't say that or you can't do this. And let's let's be honest, this is a man who is already quite sort of irked by the fact that the SEC sort of points well, out he, consequences. He lost. Yeah. It got thrown out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the SEC comes after him around a range of things. Of course, he's had defamation cases launched against him for what he said on Twitter. He's won those. He does have some good wins in the court along the way. But, you know, this... This is going to be fascinating. And, and here's the other thing that struck me. So Jack Dorsey had to step down as Twitter founder and CEO because he couldn't do two jobs at once. This guy already runs SpaceX. He already runs Tesla. He has a whole bunch of other companies going on along the way, from the Boring Company to Neuralink. You know, how many more businesses can he run all at once? Obviously, he does operate in a different stratosphere to the rest of us. But seriously, Twitter as well? And now one of the things I think as well, you know, he, he might fall over at the first hurdle because, of course, he's been calling for an edit button. But we had a really great chat with Lewis Mitchell from the University of Adelaide who actually said an edit button isn't as easy as it appears. Now, I talked to him because I was like, well, how hard can it be just put in an edit feature? Like, it's really not that complicated. Uh, and Lewis really does break it down quite well. Here's what he said. Hey, um, there's a few reasons uh, at various different levels why it's it's hard to actually have an employ uh, an edit button on Twitter that actually works the way that you think it does. Um, so there's you know there's a really technical fundamental uh, level to this. There's like a brand issue for Twitter, and there's a broader social um, issue. So you know just at the technical level, there's this sense in which you can't actually do it. You know, um, Twitter provides its data to third parties through something called an application programming interface, um, an API. Um, and essentially what that means it's doing is it's sending out tweets um, as emails to, um, you know, to whoever kind of who could uh, program and, 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 can, and can listen to these tweets. So once Twitter sends out those, those tweets, so once the, uh, the tweets have been written and sent, it, sent out and researchers and other companies, you know, uh, Hootsuite or TweetDeck uh, or Twitterific um, can download them and store them, then they're out there. So um, having an edit button is the same as having a delete button. You know, all that it does, it sends out a message um, through that API to the third parties and it says, please delete this tweet. Um, or an edit button would have to do the same. It would have to say, please edit this, this tweet. But it's just like, that's just like um, uh, uh, asking for an email to be recalled, you know, once you've sent it. If you sent out an embarrassing email, there's no way for you to get it back. It's out there um, and it's up to the users to delete it or not. So there's this really deep level um, at which an edit button actually just doesn't work. And it's, it's um, yeah, and there's, there's sort of nothing that they can do about it. So, yeah, Lewis is the Professor of Data Science at the University of Adelaide. So he kind of has a pretty good idea of what's going on. And as he took us through it, you know, there are a whole bunch of reasons why it's not simple because it distributes far and wide. You throw the pebble in the pond and the ripples go everywhere. You can't get all of those ripples back at once, which is where I thought when you asked him about, OK, is there some way we can fix this? Surely, surely. Come you, on, you know, how are I going to be? So, so, you know, you could hear the urgency in your voice for wanting the edit button, you know, for the occasional typo. 
But he talked about a really couple of benign examples of where you can completely flip it and make something different. But imagine if you wanted to be a malign actor in this circumstance. Here's what, how he explained it. Imagine that I say, um, you know, I, I tweet out that I love cats or I think hot cross buns should be available all, all year round. Um, <laughs> and then you write back, you, you quote my tweet or you reply and you say, yeah, me too. Um, I agree. That sounds, that sounds great. Great idea. Um, if I go back uh, and then, um, you know, and edit my tweet um, to say um, dogs, are, uh, dogs are great um, or something completely different or some, some horrible statement, then you're still left there saying, um, uh, 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 saying I agree, great idea, yay, um, yay, great. And so I've misrepresented you now. So there's this issue for Twitter that, um, uh, uh, that uh, the edit button could, in principle, be weaponized. Right. So um, and you can imagine how with bot armies and things like this, like this is uh, this is potentially a tool that can be used um, you know, to hurt people. Um, so, you know, there is a counter argument um, to this, like, uh, yes, that is, this is on, um, on on Twitter to police and to uh, and to under uh, to understand and to get on top of. Um, uh, uh, but it's you know, it, it's it's difficult. It's just another um, uh, it's another uh, a thing that has, has been a challenge for, for Twitter all along in dealing with misinformation and um, and and how to uh, and, and how to deal with it. So, um, what could Twitter do um, to ameliorate this um, issue? Like, yes, there are things that um, that you can do, and if you if you um, don't worry about the, the fundamental issue that third parties have. Um, downloaded tweets and they're out there in the ether, then, yeah, you could do things to uh, make this issue not quite so bad, at least on Twitter.com. Um, you could put in a, a timer, say. You could, you could say you can only edit your tweet within uh, 30 seconds. And so then, you know, the, the issue is it's not as many people who can um, uh, have replied to my cats and dogs example. Um, uh, but these are um, uh, these are considerations uh, for Twitter to, to take into account. You know, we're a couple of layers deep. Um, into subtleties and uh, into things that are not quite so straightforward here. Um, so yeah, so this uh, the point is that this just raises a lot of issues for um, uh, for Twitter. Um, it becomes a brand issue um, for them as well. And it's something that they really have to put some careful thought into. And, you know, it was the most innocent exchange I think I've ever had about Twitter. You know, we're talking about cats and we're talking about dogs. Hot cross buns. Hot cross buns. But he's absolutely right. Like, if you, if you did want to be bad and, you know, I'm quite a cynical person, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, people would do that. I'd probably do it. Like, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, imagine if I put Vegemite and then changed it to Marmite. That would be just weird. Well, I, when he said, I love cats, I was like, well, I definitely would never tweet that. So if that came across, I would be, I'd be very mad. So it, it's going to be very interesting and I think we're just going to continue to see how it does all unfold. Now, Elliot, I do want to ask you, did you lose any money with your Board 8 Yacht Club NFT being stolen this week? Uh, I think that would have required me to have money in the first place to have bought a Board 8 NFT. Uh, but it is quite remarkable how many millions were lost um, from the hack. This is an extraordinary story. What did you think when you read it? Because I sort of think Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs are basically cocaine for people who don't do drugs. You know, it's God's way of saying I think they you, you do have drugs too much money, too, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think owning a Board Ape NFT excludes you from that, but I, I do get your point um, about it, of course. So what did you think? I mean, as, as simple as Instagram. Hello, Mark, if you're listening. Um, you know, we're still having hacks on Instagram that can have some massive consequences and huge financial loss for people. I'm, I'm sort of wondering what, like, because 
most Instagram hacks and, you know, we've all now used to Forex traders. We're used to Russian bots. Yeah. You know, we're used to all that on on our internet now. So I'm sort of wondering how do people not think this was suspicious when it came across and to then click on it for it to then be lost. So there's a little bit of confusion about how this happened because it doesn't look like, it. you know, their account, yes, was hacked, but it doesn't. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't sit right. Well, it's all a little bit weird. Apparently, they were valued at something like two point seven million dollars. But I'm still trying to figure out. Like, even when the Nazis looted, you know, family homes and art galleries in Germany, the artworks were eventually traced, tracked, returned, and to their original owners. You know, decades down the track. This blockchain thing, mate, aren't we supposed to be able to find everything and know what's going on and where it is and who owns what and everything? How, how do you get away with an NFT and not sort of be able to go straight away? Um, that's not yours. I think that, you know, people are now asking that question, certainly of Board 8 Yacht Club. And Simon, you actually had a conversation with with NFTs. We're not with Board 8 Yacht Club, uh, alas, but bringing it closer to home with Lucy Keeler, who is the co-founder of White Culis. Now, that is a contemporary art gallery that is sort of bringing together the best of both worlds. Yeah, look, I love Lucy's work for a different reason. For many years, she was the curator of Vivid Sydney. And, of course, those fantastic works I would sit and watch for ages outside the Customs House and Museum of Contemporary Art, you know, where the entire building would light up with this adventure yeah. with music and everything. Just wonderful, wonderful pieces of art. So in that way, I could get my head around the whole NFT space and what's going on there. Of course, we had two terrible years. The first one was cancelled in 2020. The second one was cancelled just as the new COVID wave hit last year at the very last minute. And so that sent her down a path where she started thinking about the NFT space, what it meant, could it work? She teamed up with a bunch of other uh, co-founders who have the technical expertise, and now they've just launched White Cubulus. It's opened this week. It's a, an Australian online contemporary art gallery exhibiting curated NFTs by professional fine artists. And when we say professional fine arts, we're talking about Archibald Prize winner Wendy Sharp, the former director of the National Art School, Bernard Ollis, and Lucasfilm artist Tuman Atangardis, who amazingly, you know, works for Lucasfilms doing all of that incredible Star Wars stuff. So, you know, he's got this incredible pedigree as well. And they've now moved into this new space. So I was really fascinated to have this conversation with her about what's going on and how the artists are reacting to the NFT space. Everyone responds in different ways, obviously. We've got artists that are simply not interested, not ready. Um, but the thing, the thing that ties everybody together, because we've got very young artists, we've got very established artists from all different countries and all different walks of life, the thing that unites them all is curiosity. And to be honest, that's the whole reason why this entire thing was born in the first place is because I was curious, my three co-founders were curious and we worked out how to build this thing and the artists are all curious to find out how they can make work in this new genre. So, you know, it, it's really interesting because I think about this in terms of art over the last century. When the modernists came along, there was this incredible moment when cubism, impressionism, all of those isms in the art world emerged. And they were quite shocking and quite different at the time. So it made me rethink all of this so that the NFTs are kind of that cubist moment for the 21st century. So I did ask her about the kinds of artists who are working in the NFT space. There's two kinds of artists that we're looking at. 
because we can support many different kinds of creatives, but what we've chosen to do is pick two specific groups of artists. Um, projects like festivals and galleries will always have in real life work. Um, and this is just a, a, a way to have, have a dual life and a dual income for artists. So the artist that we've chosen, Wendy Sharp is a great example. Mm -hmm. Very um, prolific, one of the most decorated artists in our country. Uh, she has an Archibald Prize and every other prize really in our country. So she... And the Queen of Marrickville. <laughs> and the Queen of Marrickville. <laughs> She'd love that. Um, so what we're doing to help Wendy is to help her move from her traditional art practice into virtual space. So we're working with her to animate her work for the very first time. And we're also working with artists like Tuman Alton Gaddis, who is a Hollywood feature film mm. VFX artist. And he, his practice lives and breathes in virtual space anyway, but he's never released a work in crypto space. So we're taking him into NFTs for the first time. Now, sticking to sort of in the same realm of things, we did talk, of course, about crypto and we did talk about Russia. You know, the sanctions um, are still ongoing as we continue to watch sort of the atrocities unfold in the Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I talked to Janine Granger from Easy Crypto all about, um, you know, obviously crypto is supposedly being used to evade sanctions in Russia. And obviously there's a lot of onlookers that are now questioning how how is that happening? How bad is crypto for letting it happen? But it's one of those things, any tech can be used for, for good or for evil, as she explains. One of the things that's been really interesting through the conflict in Russia and Ukraine is how cryptocurrency has come to the forefront and been actually making quite a few headlines. So it's great for the industry and great for more prominence of crypto assets and digital assets more broadly. But there is obviously, as you referred to, those conflicting themes of how cryptocurrency is being used. We're seeing some amazing innovation coming out of Ukraine and out of the Ukrainian government in particular, where they're looking at things like fundraising for their war efforts through crypto assets. Um, they were discussing at one point issuing NFTs for fundraisers. We've seen um, NFTs of the Ukrainian flag go up. So there's a whole lot of really interesting things and in harnessing that ability to, I guess, use the power of peer-to-peer, of, -peer, of instant digital payments to get people from all around the world participating um, in their campaign. Similarly, though, there is the potential, of course, for Russia to be using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. And this is something else that we've seen a fair amount of headlines on. But I think it's really important to understand that, you know, any technology can be used for good or for ill. And it's really around the intent. It's, you know, the technology itself is agnostic. It's the intent of the user behind it. But there is a lot of really positive benefits that we can see from crypto assets. And there is a lot of mitigations that can be put around the negative use cases which the transparency on the blockchain really helps prevent things like sanctions evasion. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? The yin and yang of this whole thing. She did a great piece for StartupDaily.net, which was titled The Double-Edged Sword of Cryptocurrency in War. And so, you know, the, one of the questions that you put to her that I really liked, Elliot, was your point about smaller users being hit by sanctions and blocks. It's that sense that, like, with any sanction, and we see this debate over and over again, there is this collateral damage in the experience and so she addressed that and how do we tackle that both individually and broader level and kind of 
basically at international level, the UN level, in dealing with these particular issues? I think that's a judgment call that you can't really make, right? I mean, there are some judgments you can make around, you know, shutting off particular wallet addresses, particular users, things like Russian exchanges have been shut down by, you know, for receiving or sending payments from a lot of other crypto companies. Easy Crypto, for example, you know, we don't send or receive payments to known Russian exchanges. But that really brings up the broader question of what the international community is trying to do with sanctions. So when you're seeing, you know, I think Instagram is no longer in Russia. I mean, that's not there about the oligarchs. That's there to try and, you know, in the app stores, um, Visa, MasterCard, they're not shutting down the big players in the economy. They're trying to bring the whole economy to a halt to put pressure on the government. And that's more of a, I guess, an ethical and moral question for the entire global community as to if that's, you know, the right action to take as opposed to, you know, a more targeted approach, which may be less effective. And it's certainly not something that I think the crypto people necessarily need to address. It is, as she said, it is something that the world sort of needs to come together and decide on sort of these targeted measures and how to best go about it. Now, We will end at home, of course, Simon, New South Wales. We all, well, those of us that live here, including you and I, know that it is quite innovative in the things that it does do. And now there's a scorecard to prove it. Absolutely. We caught up with Professor Barney Glover, who is the Vice-Chancellor of Western Sydney University this week. And there's a new report out called the New South Wales Innovation and Productivity Scorecard. It's the third one. It stopped for two years amid the pandemic. But the new one comes out and, and politicians in New South Wales are pretty proud of it too because basically it says we're the best, we're leading Australia, you know, it's measured a whole bunch of different metrics. But what I loved about it and what I found really, really interesting were the numbers around universities and what is going on there. Because 30%, nearly a third of startups and scale-ups are emerging out of the tertiary education sector. To me, that is pretty astonishing and pretty profound. If you think about it, let's go back to Canva. They met at uni. Go back to Atlassian. They met at uni. There is this thing going on in the universities that Professor Glover talked about because, of course, there's been incredible transformation over the last decades in the space. So when I asked him about that and what was going on, he talked about how they're leading the way in some areas, but also there are other areas to improve. So one of the interesting changes that the last decade has brought to innovation in universities in Australia is that we are if you go back to the 1990s where innovation was associated largely with pretty traditional modes of commercialization of intellectual property particularly coming out of our stem disciplines uh, in the biological and the physical sciences and engineering and coming through and being commercialized in various ways now we're seeing start-offs start-ups and, and spin-offs emerging from intellectual property coming from our students undergraduate and postgraduate students as well as the way we work with entrepreneurs in the broader community that bring their ideas to university startup hubs and to university incubators and to, in our case, at Western Sydney, our launchpad. And this is a way of nurturing that intellectual property into that next phase of attracting investment. So that's one of the reasons I think we're seeing growth in this space. And it's great to see New South Wales leading the nation. And we're the biggest state So we should be showing a lot of leadership in this regard, but it's great to see those numbers. I agree with you. It's one of the strong indicators. And the government in New South Wales is behind that and uh, supporting it in universities. We're looking for more support uh, in the next uh, few years because I think this is going to be an increasingly important part of 
influencing the innovation space and the knowledge economy in New South Wales. Possibly the only areas of challenge in the data, again, it's lagging data, is again not strong in university industry collaboration and some of the business and government investment in R&D in comparison to other jurisdictions nationally and internationally. And I think, again, uh, Simon, that's an area where the New South Wales government recognises that challenge and is doing a number of things, I think, which are quite exciting to address that. I think that's one of the things he said people are looking to improve the New South Wales government is addressing them because they have noticed it as well. So fortunately, it doesn't seem to be falling on deaf ears. And he does sort of give some ideas to you as well with the election coming up, of course, federally, not so much statewide. But, you know, these things can be extrapolated out. Um, And he does say there's challenges to grapple with, but here are some of his suggestions as well. A couple of things I would say, and for all both sides of the political spectrum, Simon, and I think UA brought out a very powerful statement, UA being Universities Australia, the peak body for universities uh, this year, uh, peak body for universities brought out a statement this week, which is a very powerful statement about the benefit to the economy by investing in universities. And I think those figures that came out this week just demonstrate to both sides of uh, both the government and to the opposition, the value of investing in R&D in universities, investing in universities to create graduates to influence our GDP, uh, to really drive a knowledge economy. Investing in universities is cru- crucial to that. We're going to need R&D investment at a scale we haven't seen before. And I think both government and opposition will need to grapple with that challenge. But I think the economic analysis demonstrates It'll make a huge difference. The other thing is we're going to need more places funded in the sector, more student places right across the disciplines, particularly in STEM. We've we've been hearing this week about uh, Engineers Australia being very concerned about mathematics teachers and ensuring that we have the right qualifications for our maths teachers in schools. Let's get STEM right. Let's make sure it's funded properly in universities with the right amount of resource from the Commonwealth the right number of places so that we can actually attract uh, more and more students into those disciplines. We're going to go through a phase in Western Sydney of quite significant growth over the next decade and beyond. We're going to need more higher education places and more vocational training places. So I think there's a great deal for governments and opposition during an election campaign to begin to engage with that opportunity to invest in higher education as a driver, uh, as a lead indicator, that investment of um, the future of uh, of our economy. So, and right now, when we're looking at the challenges of inflation rates and uh, potentially seeing interest rates going up again to counter the inflation challenge we have, we need job creation, we need wages growth in Australia, we definitely need investment in our universities, and we need investment in the R&D capability in Australia. The, the scorecard illustrates really powerfully that when you have great universities, you can drive an innovation economy. And we need to grapple with the challenges around that, even in the difficult times, as we're undoubtedly having at the moment coming out of COVID, difficult times. But we need... Investment in the long term. Need we say any more? Uh, There are some great numbers in this in terms of $11.4 billion. I think it was invested in R&D. And of course, they're now looking at the net zero targets and those 
projects as well. And we're performing really well on that front. It's a really interesting report. You can read more about it on startupdaily.net, including links to the report itself. And I have to do give the team at Western Sydney University a big shout out because Professor Glover broke the news on the show when we spoke to him this week. The Times Higher Education, uh, which is of course very prestigious and looks at universities all around the world, ranked WSU number one worldwide in 2022 based on its commitment to the UN Sustainable Development Goals for Impact and Innovation. How awesome is that? That's amazing. Well done, Western Sydney University. What great work uh, by the team over there. But, Simon, that does bring us to the end of another week here on Suds. Uh, Absolutely. Of course, the show will be back on air Monday, 2pm. We have to remember to turn up for work on a Monday, Elliot. We've been out of practice. Not if we're in Queensland, which is where (laughs) I plan to be. It is another long weekend for those lucky guys up there. So for us, we'll be back on Monday. Everyone, have a great weekend. We'll catch you soon. Bye for now. Listener.